Take your Bibles this morning and let's return to our study of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. We'll look this morning specifically at verses 27 and 28, but I want us to drop back and begin reading in verse 23, just so we can capture the whole paragraph and the thought there. I want to preach this morning a title, uh, a message entitled, It's Time to Face the Music. It's time to face the music. I've got to tell you a funny story before we begin. Last week, coming back from Snowbird, I was uh, privileged to be a part of the the men's group that went up there for the men's conference. And uh, coming back Sunday afternoon, uh, I was on the road between... uh, between Andrews and Asheville, so on the Tennessee side of Asheville. And you know me, I'm not exactly the slowest person on the road. Generally, I'm probably one of the fastest. But anyway, I guess they don't teach people to move over anymore. Uh, Came up behind traffic, and I was locked into just tons of traffic. We were still moving pretty good, actually. Uh, but still just a bottleneck, and I couldn't do anything. And all of a sudden, up behind me comes this huge bunch of Harley-Davidson motorcycles just rumbling, and must have been 15 or 20 of them. They come up behind me, and I have never seen anybody get this close. Their front wheels were just about, I kid you not, you think I'm exaggerating? They were just about rubbing my bumper. They were on, they were on the side panels at the corners of the car, coming up on the uh, quarter panels there in the rear and coming up behind me. I couldn't go anywhere. And they're, and you know what's running through my mind, right? I mean, the devil on one shoulder <laughs> saying, Stomp on the brake. Man, they would have piled up like dominoes. (laughs) And then the Lord on the other shoulder saying, Scott, don't you do that. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I listened to the Lord because I moved over and they rumbled past me. There's about eight or ten motorcycle gangs in America. They kill FBI agents. I'm serious. Law enforcement agents, they run drug rings and prostitution rings. There's a couple of big name gangs like that, and this was one of the big ones you think of. They rumbled by me, and that's who it was. It was one of these gangs, their Florida chapter, their big logo and their name... And I kid you not, I was listening to a podcast on the radio of this verse. It is appointed unto me and wants to die after this, the judgment. (laughs) I thought, I'm glad I listened to the Lord. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, beginning in verse 23. The writer of Hebrews says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has entered, not in holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Father, at this time of the year, we think about the cross and the empty tomb. And it's something that we ought to think about constantly as believers. To know that there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Lord, we are so grateful for that. Lord, as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we're in that section now where repeatedly it's spoken of the sacrifice that Christ made, His high priesthood. Open our minds, open our understandings. Lord, that there might be a higher degree of gratitude in our hearts. A greater degree of service in our lives. As we wait for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Many years ago, somehow, there was a man who managed to con his way into the emperor, the emperor of China, his orchestra, his professional orchestra. There was a man that was able to con his way into that orchestra. He couldn't play a note. He would raise the flute to his lips and he would pretend. And as long as he was in a large group, nobody knew the difference. And he was able to get away with it for years. In fact, he made a very comfortable living and he enjoyed a certain degree of success. But on one occasion, a certain degree of prestige, on one occasion the emperor's individual that managed this, the emperor told him, I want everybody in my orchestra to appear before me. I want a private recital. Well, when the flutist heard about that, he was scared to death. There was no time to learn the instrument, and certainly not to learn the instrument at that level. Playing at that level would take a lifetime to achieve. And so the day of his recital came that he was up here before the emperor of China and he decided that he was going to pretend like he was very, very ill. But all they did was to reschedule. 
The day of that came and he tried to pretend again to be ill and the person managing the orchestra said, no, you're not going to do that again. Ill or not, you've got to appear. Well, on the morning of his private recital before the emperor of China, he took poison and he killed himself. And so has come down through history the saying that we still say today, It's time to face the music. He refused to face the music. I want you to listen carefully today because one of these days, everyone has to face the music and you're not going to get away from it and I'm not either. And when that day comes, you'll either hear a terrible dirge of judgment played or you'll hear, hear the sweet melody of salvation song. Today I want you to see what your future holds, but I also want you to see as a believer the hope that you have, the assurance that you have. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, first of all, write down our destiny. Look at verse 27 again. It describes our destiny. He says, and just as it is appointed for man once to die and after that comes judgment. The first thing I want you to see here about our destiny is that we all die. Now lest you think I'm trying to depress you on a Sunday morning before we're said and done, what I actually want you to understand is the victory and the hope and the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. But first of all, we see that we will die. He uses a word here, appointed. It is appointed unto man wants to die. And in the Greek language, the word appointed here, that word literally means something that is laid up in store. Something that is reserved. When you have a reservation for an airplane, what what do you do? When you're going to take a flight, you have to make a reservation. It's necessary. Well, every one of us has a reservation with death and mankind's doing a very good job of keeping that reservation. In fact, three people die every second, 180 people every single minute, 11,000 every single hour, 260,000 every single day, 95 million a year keep their appointment with death. You may be late for other appointments. You will not be late for this one. Death is not an accident. It is an appointment. And it plays no favorites. There's an old Jewish proverb that says, If the rich could hire other people to die for them, the poor would make a wonderful living. Euripides, the Greek poet, called death, the debt we must all pay. Now, first of all, there's two things very troubling about death. And I want to I encourage you to think with me about both of them. First of all, there is the certainty of it. It's very difficult to force people to think about their own death. And it, it's very hard to convince some people that it's really going to happen one day. 
heard about an evangelist preaching a revival at a church. And he was preaching that particular night on the brevity of life. He took a long pause and then he said, Every member of this church is going to die. Well, to his surprise, a man sitting on the front row responded to this statement with a huge smile. The evangelist thought maybe this guy misunderstood something, so he said it much louder this time. Every member of this church is going to die. Well, he crossed his arms and legs, smiled even more. The evangelist said it again. Every member of this church is going to die. And the guy burst out with laughter. The evangelist thought, that's odd. So in the lobby afterwards, he caught up with this man. And he said, sir, why in the world did you respond like that? Why did you laugh? He said, sir, because I'm not a member of this church. <laughs> the certainty of death. Members of all churches. In fact, every member of the human race is going to die. The other thing troubling about it is the uncertainty of it. We know it's going to happen. But we don't know when it's going to happen. And we don't know how it's going to happen. It may be today, maybe 80 years from now for some young person. It may be old age, maybe a heart attack, cancer, maybe an accident. It may just be old age. I read about the story of a, a Mrs. Moeller. She was on trial for killing her fourth husband and she had made a deal with the uh, DA to save herself from the death penalty and in that deal she had to come clean about all of her husbands he said how did your first husband die she said from mushroom poisoning how'd your second husband die from mushroom poisoning how'd your third husband die from mushroom poisoning well, Mrs. Moeller, your fourth husband you're being tried for, died of a massive brain injury. What happened? She said, I hit him in the head with the skillet because he wouldn't eat the mushrooms. <laughs> Whether it's the mushrooms or the skillet or something else, you're going to die. We know it's certain, but it's uncertain because we don't know how, we don't know when. We're going to be judged. That's something else we see here about this point of our destiny. Not only uh, will we die, but he says we will be judged. I read just this week the story of Bert Olney, O-L-N-E-Y. He was the town skeptic, possibly even a town, the town atheist. He loved to get a hold of people in town, Christians in town, and try to argue with them. He loved to get a hold of preachers and try to argue with them. A new preacher was coming to town. They warned him about Mr. Olney. But he, this, Mr. Olney got a hold of this young man. And uh, he said, young man, I want you to know that I do not believe your Bible. What do you think about that? And the young preacher said, it is appointed unto man wants to die and after this the judgment. Bert said, that's not what I asked you. What do you think about me not believing the gospel that you preach? It is appointed unto man wants to die and after this the judgment. 
Son, are you not going to debate with me? It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this the judgment. Oh, I see. You're just not smart enough to get in a debate with me, right? It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this the judgment. Bert Olney stormed off in a huff. But the next day, early in the morning, he was knocking at the preacher's door. He said, son, I haven't slept all night. When I left you and I crossed the footbridge over the creek, through the woods, heading home, it was like even the bullfrogs were saying, instead of ribbit, they were saying judgment, judgment, judgment. And I got home and that is all I could hear as I laid awake all night tossing and turning. Preacher, you got to help me. And that day, that new young preacher was able to lead the town skeptic to faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting when you think about all the false, unbiblical ideas people have, just like that skeptic Bert Olney before he was converted. Some hold to the cessation of life. Life just ends in our schools for decades now. Students have been taught evolution. You're here by accident. There's no purpose to your life. You aren't created. There's no afterlife. When you die, you just die. That's all there is to it. Some hold to reincarnation. That's big in the eastern part of the world in some religions. You, you die, you come back as something else. You might come back as a prince. You might come back as a lizard. A couple of things we used to have around here. When our offices were down here, we had a stray cat around here all the time. We still have all these little lizards, especially in warm weather on the bricks. You can see them scooting around. They've got that blue stripe on them. They can absolutely fly. Well, in Eastern religion, depending on what you've been like, you know, you might come back as a rich millionaire or a celebrity who's on a yacht in the Caribbean, or you might come back as a stray cat or lizard. And this cycle continues until hopefully you come back as something better and better each time and you reach a state of karma. In my first church at a seminary, one of the members told me about a new lady that had just moved in next to her. I'd already left the church. It was a farming community. And Shirley was telling Connie and I about this new lady that moved in, a new age lady. She didn't want people coming to her house and stepping on the grass or on bugs because she thought one of those bugs might be her deceased husband. (laughs) What was she saying about her husband, you know? She said the farmers just need to go out in their fields and they need to sit down and they need to have a conversation with the insects and say, you know, if you wouldn't eat my crops, the farmers around here wouldn't spray pesticides. Can we just have some type of happy agreement? This was the lady, Shirley said, moved in next to her and they had conversations. Folks, what's the Bible say? It is appointed unto man once to die and after this 
the judgment. You live one time around on this earth. You die and you face God in judgment. And you will live somewhere for all of eternity. And the Bible only gives us two options. Heaven or hell. That's all. You see folks, your life does not end in a period. Your life ends with a comma. Because you die and then that's just a whole new beginning in eternity. That's our destiny. And I'll have more to say later about the judgment part of it. But secondly this morning I want you to see our hope. Our hope. He says, so Christ, verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Verse 27, we see that man has three problems. What are those three problems? Sin, death, and judgment. Those are the three problems we all deal with. Verse 28, we see that Christ has dealt with all three of those problems, giving us victory. Jesus died to save us from the penalty of sin. He died taking the judgment that we deserve. He was raised to deliver us from the From the sting of death, he's coming again one day to give us the glorious consummation of our salvation. Well, when we think about our hope, a couple of things I want to say here. First of all, Christ once appeared on earth for us. Verse 26 and 28. There's an emphasis in these verses on the word Once we die once, Jesus appeared once to deal with sin. He appeared in order to suffer one time to put away sin. When you understand the book of Hebrews, you see that this is a very important aspect of the gospel. In the book of Hebrews, the writer is addressing primarily Jews and he's comparing and contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant, showing them how the new covenant fulfills the old and is it better in every respect to the old. In the old covenant, things were not... Not done one time because of the insufficiency of everything that they did. The insufficiency of the sacrifices, for example. And so things had to be done over and over and over again. Uh, in chapters 8 and 9, he says that it had to be done over and over and over again as a reminder to us every year of our sin. And so all through the book, comparisons are being made. The old covenant contains the shadows. The new covenant contains the reality. He's trying to get them to come out of the shadows, come into the reality, because some of them are wanting to go back to temple worship to avoid the persecution as Christians they're facing. He points out how in times past, God spoke to people in many different ways through the prophets. And through miracles and so forth. But today in these last days he's spoken to us through his son. In the old covenant they had a sanctuary. The temple. It was a mere shadow of a greater heavenly temple. 
In the Old Covenant, they had a high priest. They had multiple high priests throughout their history because those high priests would die just like everybody else. And one time a year, the high priest would take the blood of a lamb and he would go into the Holy of Holies and present the blood there in the presence of God. And he would have to present that blood year after year because again, those sacrifices were incomplete. And he would also have to present a, uh, present a sacrifice for himself first. And then for the people. Because he was a sinful man just like them. Well, in the new covenant, Jesus is the lamb. He is the perfect lamb of God. He doesn't have to present a sacrifice for himself because he is none other than the sinless son of God. He doesn't have to present himself over and over again. Once was enough because he's perfect. And so he presented himself on the cross one time. Now in chapters 8 and 9, I want to reach back to chapters 8 and 9 and I want to grab a hold of some things and, and pull them into the discussion this morning of the verses that we're in. Because in those chapters, he's been speaking of the earthly priest who entered a temple that was made just like the heavenly temple. You go back to the book of Exodus, beginning in the book of Exodus, read through the Pentateuch, and Moses was given very specific specific instructions about how he was to build the tabernacle. The exact dimensions, the size of everything, everything that went into the temple, the furnishings, the utensils. I mean, everything was very specific. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews is saying here that this earthly tabernacle that Moses was erecting was a copy of the heavenly temple. There's a heavenly temple. And the earthly temple was to be patterned and made as an exact replica of the heavenly. This heavenly temple is not made with human hands. The earthly temple, of course, is made and so with human hands. So humans had to get instructions. In the earthly temple, there are earthly priests who offer animal sacrifices. These priests come and go again because they all die and their sacrifices had to be offered continually because they were not perfect. But the heavenly temple is better. It's built by God. And there's a high priest. His name is Jesus. He's the perfect high priest. He never dies. On the third day, what did he do? He rose from the dead, never to die again. Death can't keep a man who has no sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin, so the grave could not hold him. He rose from the dead, never To die again. He has entered into the Holy of Holies. And the amazing thing is, as he's gone behind the curtain and entered the Holy of Holies, through Christ, we can go there too. He's opened the way, signified by the veil being torn. 
And in doing all of this this way, what has God done? God has rendered the old covenant obsolete. We're told that specifically at the end of chapter 8 verse 13. That God has rendered the old covenant now obsolete. That's the sad thing about our Jewish friends who go to worship in their synagogues and go through all their rites and rituals. God is not dealing with mankind any longer on the basis of the old covenant. He's dealing with mankind now on the basis of the new covenant. And the priest that we have, Jesus, and the sacrifice for sin that he made one time. Jesus said, it is finished. Folks, we don't believe in the ongoing mass or the ongoing sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus presented himself one time. One time was sufficient because of who he is. And so today he represents us permanently before the Father because he is the eternal Son of God who never dies. And so in every way they are being shown that the new covenant is better. All the blessings of the new covenant come Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 12. If we were to drop back to verse 12. We'd see the blood of Jesus Christ purchased redemption. Verse 14. The blood of Jesus Christ purged our guilty conscience. Verse 15. The blood of Jesus provided our inheritance. Verse 22. The blood of Jesus pardoned our sins. Verse 26. The blood of Jesus put away our sins. The word there is annulled. Stricken from the record as if those sins were never there. Hallelujah for the blood of Jesus Christ. And our assurance is, our hope and our assurance is that if we've come to Jesus Christ for salvation, though we die, yet shall we live. And folks, that life that we will live in His presence one day is not diminished. In fact, it's life to a greater dimension. The Christian doesn't lose in death, he gains. We shall live in His presence. Everybody will live somewhere for all of eternity, either heaven or hell. If we have trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have a heavenly home. That's why He died on the cross. He paid your penalty and my penalty. 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that He might bring us to God. Today, if you're in Christ, I want you to see that If Jesus tarries, you're going to die. But it's not something you have to fear. In fact, it can be sweet for the believer because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What a difference for Christians. 
Secondly, related to our hope, we see that Christ now appears in heaven for us. There in verse 24. He's there now. What's he doing? Well, John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Heaven is a real place. First John 2 says, he's our advocate. Hebrews 4 says, he's our sympathetic high priest. You're never alone. He sent the Holy Spirit who's with you. The Spirit is also interceding for you. The Son of God is interceding for you. Folks, what more could we ask for? And thirdly about our hope, we see that Christ will appear again to rule over us. Look at verse 28 again. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now there's an interesting point here about Christ coming again. And the Jews to whom this letter was written would have understood the analogy that He was making. You see, back in the Old Testament, when the high priest went behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, remember what they would tie to him? A rope, because if something happened to him and there he died, they couldn't go in after him because they would be stricken dead. They would have to pull him out. Now, why would he be stricken dead? If he were stricken dead, it meant that God had not accepted the sacrifice for sin that he went in there to make. But if he emerged again, they were all waiting outside because if he emerged again, there were shouts of hosannas and hallelujahs because it meant that God had accepted the sacrifice. When he would come a second time, the high priest would come out a second time. Well, in Christ... There's no doubt in our minds that he's going to emerge. There's no doubt at all because he's perfect. His sacrifice is perfect. So we're waiting. We, we, we are waiting now for him to come a second time for his bride. And we know in the meantime that the sacrifice he's made for our sins is complete. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're to be anxiously waiting, longing for His return. He's entered into the Holy of Holies behind the veil. And one of these days He will come a second time. And notice He says it's not to deal with sin. Because that was dealt with on the cross. Not to deal with sin. But it's to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. The glorification of our salvation. The consummation of it. Folks, we are to live now in such a way that there will be shouts of jubilation when we see Him. Just like they would shout in jubilation when the high priest emerged. We are to live in such a way, anxiously waiting, anxiously longing, that when our great high priest appears, there's shouts of hallelujah. Now, back to the judgment issue a moment. Because while it's part of our destiny, even our judgment is part of our hope for the believer. 
Look again at verse 27 as I go over this. You could ask yourself the question, do Christians face judgment? If our sin's been dealt with, do Christians face judgment? And the answer to that question is, yes. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writing to believers said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now again, for the Christian, there is, there is no doubt that we do not have to face the consequences of our sin. Christ has dealt with all of that. We don't face condemnation. Christ faced it for us. He was our substitute. You say, then why are we judged then? Well, 1 Corinthians 3 makes that clear. We don't fear the loss of salvation. We don't fear condemnation. But judgment for the Christian is for rewards. 1 Corinthians 3 says there will be rewards. And Paul says there that some Christians will have wasted their lives. There's no Christian work in their life. So it's burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. And yet they're saved. And he says others will be rewarded and they'll get like gold and silver and precious things. They've been faithful. Christian rewards. We never have to pay the price of our sin in condemnation, separation from God. But Christians are judged in order to be rewarded. And as part of that reward, the Bible talks about crowns that will be given out. First of all, there's the crown of life. James 1, 12 speaks of the crown of life. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he's been approved. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Revelation 2, 10, Jesus said, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you might be tested and you'll have tribulation 10 days be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life and so evidently the crown of life is given to those who have persevered in the midst of persecution and trials some of those have been even martyred for their faith see the contrast they may have been martyred for their faith but they get the crown of what kind of crown? crown of life They've died in Christ, yet they get life. And then secondly, we see the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8. In the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. This is given to those who look forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ, and because they're looking forward, their life, their attention is focused on that. They're not living for this world. They're living for heaven. Laying up their treasures there. They get the crown of righteousness. 1 Thessalonians 2 talks about the crown of rejoicing that is given to the soul winner. As he gets to heaven, there's other people there that he or she's led to faith in Jesus Christ. They get the crown of 
rejoicing. And then the Bible talks about the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5 that is given to pastors who faithfully shepherd their flock and teach their flock the word of God. The crown of glory. So we'll be judged, given rewards. What about lost people? Revelation 20, great white throne judgment. Lost people are judged too. Now folks, let me say something. I know not everybody will agree with me on this. I believe Revelation 20, the great white throne, it's commonly said this is judgment only for unbelievers. I think Revelation 20 is describing a general judgment with a mixed audience because he plainly ends that passage by saying, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's cast into the lake of fire. Well, what's the implication of that? The implication of that is some people will be found written in the book of life. But not everybody goes to the same place. Everybody's judged. Believers are rewarded. Unbelievers, we're told, go into eternal destruction. Daniel Webster was asked on one occasion, what would you consider to be the greatest single thought that's ever occupied your mind? And without a moment's hesitation, the great statesman said, the greatest single thought that ever has occupied my mind is that one day I will have to give an account of myself to Almighty God. There's a day of accountability coming. Jesus taught that likewise in many parables. Okay, thirdly, quickly, what's our response? Well, our response to all of this that's been said ought to be obvious. First of all is personal faith. If you've never come to Christ, you need to come to Him because you know you're going to die and you don't know how, you don't know when and after death. You're going to stand before God and face judgment. And don't deceive yourself into thinking it will be okay. If you're outside of Christ, it will not be okay. And there's no second chance. Maybe you come to a church Easter every year because you you grew up, it's the thing to do. But maybe you've never embraced what Easter is about. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I want to, listen to me, I want, I want to beg of you to come to faith in Christ. If the Holy Spirit's been working on your heart, that's Him calling and drawing and convicting. Don't you know that there's probably many, many people in destruction even today, eternal separation from God, and they thought that they would have time. They thought. And life was up before they ever realized it would be up. And oh, if they could go back and do it differently. I'll be here in a minute to pray for you if you need Christ. 
The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Second response, this is for believers, ought to be persistent longing. We're looking in such a way that it makes all the difference in the world how we're living now. Because you see, if you're living in such a way that before today closes, Jesus might come and you're standing before him in the judgment, do you think that's going to matter how you live? Yes, it's going to matter. Is there some sin in your life you know you need to deal with? Some relationship that you know is not right? Is there anything going on that you need to deal with as a believer? Maybe you've been laying up your treasure on earth and you need to be laying up your treasure in heaven and you need to be looking and longing, living expectantly so that you'll be living in holiness each and every day. See, longing, it does make a difference in how we live now. Some of us have family, friends, loved ones. We know they're not ready. Why not use the rest of this Easter holiday season every day to be praying for that loved one you have or that friend or that person you work with that you know is not ready to meet the Lord? If he comes his second time for his bride before anybody realizes, they're not ready. Pray for them and ask God to engineer circumstances in their lives in such a way that the right people, things will work in their life every day so they will get a Christian witness. Would you do that? Think about how you're living if you're anxiously longing and pray for those that you know are not ready. Father, we thank you for warnings like this that your word gives us. We know that there are certain passages of Scripture in the Bible that are strictly encouragement, some that are strictly judgment, some that are a mixture because in the judgment it's pointed out the hope that we have in Christ. And such is the nature of this passage. Great warning, but great hope at the same time. Father, we thank you that Christ has borne our sins. We don't have to fear death. We go from life to greater life. Life is not diminished. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, thank you for this blessed hope that we have. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus this Easter season and beyond that we will be living like that crowd that would be waiting outside the earthly temple. And when the high priest would emerge, there would be shouts of jubilation. May we be living with that same expectancy. God, I do pray for that one that needs 
right now today without delay to come to Christ. Lord, press that on their hearts. That there's no guarantee that they will have another chance. I'm not trying to scare anybody. Just the reality of life and death. May they come to Christ today. And Lord, give us a burden for lost souls who don't know you. Help us not to live our lives that we're we're only concerned about ourselves. And we know our names are written in your Lamb's Book of Life, so we just go about every day and we're blind to the lost around us. God, open our eyes. Use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.